Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a terrific variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get yourself a science fiction classic like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley or How About Dune by Frank Herbert or Neuromancer by William Gibson. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That's enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is inside of your brain. This is me attempting to make an impression inside of your brain. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. It's happening. It is unfolding. The podcast is unfolding. We are here. We are breathing. We are animals. Uh, I think we used to be fish. I think human beings are descended from fish. I think we are 70% water, as is the planet. I think birds used to be dinosaurs. Dinosaurs went extinct when a giant meteor crashed into the planet, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, have you subscribed to the program at iTunes yet? Please remember that you can do that. It's free over at iTunes. Subscribe there. Subscribe at Stitcher if you're a Stitcher person. It doesn't cost a dime. And please note that you can follow me on Twitter at Brad Listy, if you want to follow my recreational tweeting. You can also follow the program itself over at Other People Pod. And here's a quick story before we get started. I was having dinner with my wife last night. We were sitting at a bar in a restaurant in Los Angeles here uh, in the uh, city uh, at the bottom of California. It was our fifth wedding anniversary. We have been married for five years, and we were sitting there enjoying uh, a beverage, an ice-cold beverage, talking about the fact that we have been married for five years and how fast it all goes, not just marriage but life in general. And uh, suddenly we turned 
to look at each other and had this unexpectedly profound moment where suddenly we realized, uh, oh my God, this is going extremely fast. Five years have just gone by in what feels like five minutes. And not just theoretically, but really. It really feels like it just went by in five minutes and everything is changing. We have a kid now and eventually, probably very soon, it's going to feel like that anyway. We are going to die. And uh, I had that thought and we both had that thought and it was this weird moment. It wasn't entirely morbid. It was also sort of exciting and thrilling and scary in a roller coaster kind of way. And I looked around the room, uh, around this restaurant at all of these other people sitting there eating and drinking and talking, none of whom it occurred to me appeared to be contemplating mortality uh, in any kind of way. And I thought to myself, my God, it's like a dream. And then our waiter brought us a salad. My guest today is Mr. Steve Rogenbuck. He is a 24-year-old poet, uh, slash blogger, slash multimedia artist, slash community organizer. Uh, I don't know exactly what you call this guy. He sort of defies uh, easy definition in the best possible way, but I do know that what he's doing is very compelling and very interesting and feels to me like the embodiment of a very contemporary mode of self-expression. He's got a new book of poetry out called Crunk Juice, which he is publishing on his very own Live My Life imprint, L-I-E-F, which you can get uh, over at livemylife.com. Steve is currently traveling the earth, giving poetry readings in people's living rooms and hosting a live web-based television program called the Illuminati Power Hour. I think I got that right. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you ready? This right here, ladies and gentlemen, is my conversation with Mr. Steve Roganbuck. I'm in Brooklyn right now. I'm, uh, I've been traveling around the country this whole year. Uh, usually I stay like a week or two with people, sometimes just a couple days. Uh, but right now I'm staying like a bit longer around New York City. I'm, I've been here a couple weeks and I'll be here like three more weeks, I think. So I'm putting down a little deeper roots in Brooklyn. I mean, is that some place you see yourself ultimately winding up once all this traveling is done? Or are you kind of like, do you see yourself just moving around nomadically for the foreseeable future? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I see myself eventually settling in San Francisco or nearby because the weather. I think I I uh, got sick of the of the Midwest and the the winters. And... I, I like the idea of it always being somewhere around like sweatshirt weather the whole year. Um, so, but I like New York City because there's so many people here. Uh, like I keep sort of lists of um, when people contact me and say like, you know, let me know when you're in this city because I would come to a reading. And I keep track of that. And the list for New York City is like three times longer than any other city. So it's just kind of fun to be around that many internet acquaintances. Sure. Sure. Now, how do you keep these lists? I mean, just like a list on a Microsoft word document, or are you doing all this via Twitter or like, how do you, keep, uh, how no, do you keep yeah, track? just, just, uh, just a text file. It's primitive. It's pretty primitive. Okay. So let's get into, uh, origin story. <laughs> Um, like, first of all, you said you're from the Midwest. So, I mean, I'm just curious to know who you are, like where you're from. Like you're from Michigan, right? Yeah. My dad is a farmer. I was from rural Michigan, like nowhere near Detroit or anything. 
Okay, so where, like, what part of the state are you in? Like, up in the. Uh... Um, well, there, I was in the Lower Peninsula. Uh, people from Michigan uh, uniformly use their hand to show you <laughs> where they're from in the state. Uh, the Lower Peninsula is said to look like a mitten. And uh, I would be in the thumb of the mitten, near the tip of the thumb. So, like, on the east side of the state, um, by Lake Huron, like, I was right on the coast. I was from, I went to school in Harbor Beach, Michigan. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's weird. I have, I think I might have even talked about this before, but uh, when I was a kid, I had a, I lived in Milwaukee. That's where I'm from. And uh, nice. I got a helium balloon at, at Donut Sunday at my church, uh, like my family's church after, you know, mass on, on Sunday. And I tied a note to it and I let it go. Like I wrote like, you know, I was like in second grade or something and I wrote a note on it. And it flew all the way from uh, suburban Milwaukee to Alpena, Michigan, which is like uh, oh, wow. like northeastern Michigan, which is a hell of a distance. And a kid <laughs> was, was walking through like a field on his way home from school and caught the balloon. Like it literally descended into his hands and he wrote me back. It's really weird. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So- I had, I had a friend once who, uh, who I think he like pooped in a bag and then he put that up on a balloon. <laughs> I don't think, he ever, <laughs> I don't think he ever heard back about it. But I remember he was like, he was saving up his poop for a while. And that was like, I guess kind of gross. Like he had it in a bag outside of his window Oh my god! Up, like on the roof, like <laughs> I don't know why like one poop wouldn't be enough, but that's one story I had. He wanted <laughs> he wanted to give himself, <laughs> but he must have had multiple balloons though. I mean, like that that seems like a heavy load. Maybe for, yeah. Yeah, you'd have to yeah. Hey, everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, so what kind of kid were you? You know, like, how did you grow up? You said your dad was a farmer. Were you like working the farm or were you just like normal kid going yeah. to normal school or like, what, what was it like? Uh, I was kind of into the farming when I was like five years old and stuff. I would play with these toy tractors, like push them back and forth across the carpet, pretend I was farming the room. But uh, the main thing was that I was really into sports after a certain point. And, like, I didn't even, like, choose a specific sport. I think I was the best at baseball. Like, I played in Little League baseball. I still have the baseball jersey, my Little League jersey. It's in my profile picture right now. Um, 
uh, it still fits me somehow. But I was a pitcher and a third baseman because I could throw well. Uh, so that was a sport I was the best at, but I, I was really into sports. I collected sports cards. And I think I always had... There was an essay by Donald Hall. I feel like... Um, I don't know. Donald Hall had this essay where he was talking about uh, he was like he was creating a myth of like uh, of the story of the writer or something, and he was saying that that the that the impulse to be a poet begins with a general impulse to want to be great or something, which I don't even think is true for all writers. But I think for me that was the way it started. I think I always wanted to be great at something. Like I think I. Uh, I wanted to be a professional sports player. And then after I was not interested in the main sports sports, then I was interested in uh riding BMX, like freestyle BMX and uh and then I was interested in being a rock star in a band, like a death metal band though. Uh and then when I went to college I sort of, well, or a little bit before college, I discovered E.E. E. Cummings, and I really liked his poetry, and then I sort of transferred my energy toward poetry. So you've been, I mean, you've jumped around, uh, you know, from thing to thing, but when you, when you like, locked onto something, like, for instance, you went from baseball to BMX, or you went from BMX to uh, playing in uh, death metal bands and stuff, was it kind of one thing at a time in kind of a monomaniacal way where you just threw all of yourself into it? Or were you doing both? Of, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it sounds like you have, and it seems like having watched you on video and stuff, that you have all this energy and you tend to channel it. But I'm wondering if you're spreading it out amongst various interests. Uh, it's fairly focused. It's been fairly focused. Like, those things overlap a little bit, but usually I would sort of be like, where they were most overlapping, it was just like sort of a transition. Like... I was getting into writing poetry a bit at the end of high school, but that was mainly when I was like really focused on uh, doing my band and also marketing my band on MySpace, which was sort of preparation for what I came to do later with poetry as well. Well, no, but, I, I was going to say, because like, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually, the fact that you had this experience in high school and you were putting together... I don't know, an online presence and building community for your music that early because there's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty sophisticated actually what you're doing. I think, you know, uh, as somebody who runs like an online blog or collective magazine or whatever, you know, I have uh, a lot of admiration for what you've been able to put together and like the community you've been able to build. That's not a simple thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's taken, taken a lot of time and a lot of work. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So what, what prompted the transitions? You know what I'm saying? Like in particular, like you were playing, you said death metal in high school. Yeah. So what was the name of your band? Well, uh, the main, I had tons of bands, but the main, <laughs> like inside projects and stuff, but my main band was, uh, my main band that I put the effort into like touring a little bit and like promoting the MySpace, that band was called Scapata di Morte, which is Italian for like fuck of death. But it's not even like the most obscene word for fuck, I think. So maybe it might be more like screw of death or hump of death, possibly. <laughs> making love um, of death. <laughs> making love of death. Uh, so that was my main band. But what's funny about it is like that was the band that I felt like the members, I was still the most driven to like make the band succeed and like to market the band. But 
uh, it wasn't even the most talented band that I was in. Like, I had this other band that I actually was in with both my brothers and some other people. Because um, my brothers, my brothers are actually more talented at music than I am. Like, I was, I was a pretty good drummer, I guess, but I, I didn't like have the ma- I didn't like have the natural music gift as much. Like, my brother could drum really well, and he hardly practiced at all. My older brother. And, but for me, it took a lot more practice. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the band with my brothers, it seemed like they were particularly, especially my older brother was particularly like sort of apathetic about like spreading the music or anything. He just like wanted to make the music really good and stuff. So he's, he's actually more of the artist, uh, whereas I feel like I have enough of the artist in me, but I'm also like just more driven to like work hard to, to build something and spread it yeah well i mean and you kind of have to have that especially in this day and age i mean you can't it's very rare the artist who just gets to sit kind of sit back uh apathetically or whatever and just make the art and do nothing in support of it if they want to build if you want to build an audience i mean it's very difficult you know i guess like once you achieve a certain readership or once you have a certain fan base you can do less of that but that's a that's a luxury it seems like uh, increasingly yeah so what were you like, like, what were you like, uh, socially as a kid? I mean, it sounds like you, you know, did fairly well. If you were playing in bands, you had friends and did stuff like that. And you weren't, I mean, you're, you're not a loner. You're a social guy, which is not necessarily always the case for people who gravitate towards poetry and writing. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, when I was really young, it was like, I didn't, I don't know. One interview I did, uh, somebody was, asking me, you know, if I might have been, like, particularly isolated because I lived in the middle of nowhere. And I feel like that's somewhat true. Like, a lot of times I would just be, like, especially when I was younger, like, elementary school, grade school, uh, I would be outside, like, playing sports sort of by myself, like, with myself, like, as if I was playing against myself, like, I would, (laughs) I would throw the ball and run and catch it and then pretend to get tackled, you know, and, uh, stuff like that, uh, so, I don't, uh, I don't know, my brothers weren't really into sports, though, so, um, but I had a few friends at school that were into things, I had one sort of best friend that started in, like, sixth grade, and we built some websites together. We like created, uh, we, we participated in e-feds. Like that was another thing I was into that I didn't mention, I guess, cause I didn't really see myself doing it professionally as much, but, uh, wrestling I was into for a while. And there were these, that was, been, that was my first creative writing experience probably was writing these role play things for, uh, these wrestlers that you would create for these e-federations and use these message boards on like GeoCities and stuff. And uh, it was like you would write a little play almost, like of what your character comes and does. He Like he does something that makes him badass looking and then he challenges another wrestler, you know. Anyway, I had a friend that we did those and then he continued where we started the band and then different bands. Um, and yeah, I I had my band friends, but I don't know. It was a particular kind of friendship. Like I didn't feel like really emotionally close. Oh, I mean, in certain ways, I guess, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It was, it was a, it was, it was a bro friendship. You know, it was like, we're in this band together. We do this activity together, but it's not like 
we were like, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think, but I mean, I think that's fairly common among adolescent boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess I wasn't particularly isolated. No, I had a average social life, maybe. I don't know. Were you, I mean, were you a good student? Uh, I got good grades. I don't think I put tons of effort and I did decent, I think, you know, like, I, I did above average with the grades, but I think it came easy to me. Like I was just a smart kid or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, I guess like once you got, uh, into the music and then once you started to move out of the music that happened in college after you read E.E. Cummings, like, did you feel that like you had taken music as far as you could take it? Or was it just a a case where you started to get more interested in the literary side of things? And that just kind of overtook you. Do you know what I'm saying? Did you hit a wall with music or did you just decide, you know, that you were going to channel all of your energies elsewhere? Uh, it was sort of this thing where they were competing interests for a while, but the main band that I was in sort of fell apart because of going to college. We didn't get to practice as much. And I think the other members especially were, uh, sort of burnt out on it because I think we were sort of pushing it, pushing kind of hard, like going on, on little tours and stuff, but we weren't really that great of a band. So, I mean, you know, we weren't getting that much momentum from it so that's kind of a tiring thing to keep up and so they were a little tired out by that and just so i think the band stuff started to sort of die down naturally and then the poetry was just really easy for me to do because it was just me i didn't have to rely on anybody else being equally interested in it um well and where were you where were you at college uh central michigan university nothing special really i went there just because my friends were there a bunch of them it sort of has a reputation as a party school it's a pretty big school the, fi- uh, the fighting chippewas is that correct yeah it is the chippewas yeah yeah okay so how long were you there for uh just four years i did the undergrad degree oh you did you did get out. the you did get the degree yeah yeah i got the undergrad when i dropped out i was out of a grad program Ah, okay. And where was that at? Uh, Columbia College, Chicago. I did the MFA for poetry there. I did like a year and then like a couple months. Uh huh. And your parents, like, were your parents like supportive of these pursuits? Like, did you have like a good relationship with them or were they like, you know, following you through all this stuff, like the death metal and the poetry or were you reacting in, reacting in any way against like parental authority? My dad has always been really supportive. Like, um, he helped me get this wagon, uh, this trailer that we used to go on tour with the band. Um, and then he's always been supportive of me following the other stuff. And, uh, with this current, like, traveling and stuff that I'm doing now, he's sort of just, like, ceded to me that that I would know more about it than him. <laughs> like, like he's like, I, he, he said something like, I don't know what's possible in this internet age in which we live. <laughs> um, whereas my mom was always a little more worried, a little bit more like encouraging me to do something that seems secure and standard. Like whenever I would express any uncertainty in my, in my like major or something, she would encourage me to like switch to accounting or something, you know, like, <laughs> right. like just completely 180 or something, you know. I can't see you as an accountant, Steve. I got to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was pretty good at math growing up, though. 
I was good at it. Really? Like, but, like up up to what point? Like, could you take it as far as calculus, or did you hit a wall? Like, I, hit, uh, I, I was I, I was good until trigonometry, and then I was just like, fuck it, you know. But I think part of that might have just been that I was sick of school and getting ready to graduate. Yeah, I think maybe similar for me. I took pre-calc in high school, but then I tried taking calculus in college because I'm like, I got to take one math class. I might as well take it. I know I can take calc. I took it in high school, but it was like way too much work that I didn't feel like putting in effort. And I just didn't. And I took this really easy algebra class and it was, it was nice. <laughs> it's like, it's like review at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remembered how to do factoring, which was a lot of fun at the time. Although now I forget again. Oh God. But, I, yeah. I wouldn't remember any of that. Um, and you know what I forgot to ask and I, I feel like compelled to ask is like what kind of farmer what kind of farming was your dad doing like what were you guys growing and how big of a plot Uh, give me a visual read on the farm that you grew up on well it's a lot of fields that are sort of like spread around the county or well not even that just like within a few miles mainly but uh, he did corn uh, sugar beets and a lot of beans and some wheat uh, so it was, so it was all crop farming, uh, which was good for me because I would eventually go vegan and so, but I still helped out on the farm. Uh, so I've got lots of tractor driving experience. I've got a little semi driving experience. Wow. So, you, okay. And so what prompt, when did the vegan thing happen? Uh, that was, well, I went, I went, uh, vegetarian, but still ate. Uh, dairy and eggs and everything uh, in like 2005, and then in 2007 I went vegan. So uh, what prompted the what, what prompted the initial shift? Uh, it was just seeing a video on the internet. I think that's part of why I've had so much connection with doing the internet stuff. Is that like I grew up in this rural area where like progressive culture and art and ideas like didn't come to me any other way than through the internet. Like, it's not like somebody at school was busting out this new cultural idea, you know, it was always on the internet. So it was somebody on like some random friend that I found from some group MSN chat or something sent me this video from like PETA. It was like, meet your meat. That was the first thing I saw that. And I didn't even immediately go vegetarian at that time, but that sort of planted the seed. And then later, I was encouraged to actually do it. And then I saw another video in 2007 that was specifically about egg production that then I decided to go vegan completely. Yeah, no, it's like uh, being confronted with like, uh, you know, factory farming and it's hard. You know, I think yeah. I challenge anybody. I don't care. Even like the most like vociferous meat eater to sit through, uh, you know, one of those videos and actually watch it and not be like nauseated. It's hard. I mean, you know, I think people just don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, and, like, people would have differences of philosophical opinion about the specifics. Like, um, I actually got into vegan activism quite a bit afterward, like, 2008, 2009. So I did some blogging about veganism. I could see myself blogging about it more, Um, although I already like the position that I'm in now. It's like I'm not specifically out there talking about veganism all, all the time, but I just have this following that is interested in kind of anything I say and that's kind of fun because then once in a while I can get onto a topic like that and sort of 
make some impact anyway. Well, but, um, people get people get emotional about food. That's what I find because like I've been I've been like fully, yeah. I've been fully vegan before. I'm I'm essentially vegetarian now. I think I bat like ninety percent or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like uh-huh. I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm pretty good. And I've been totally in the past, but. Um, everybody in my family is not, you know what I'm saying? Like my grandfather was a butcher for God's sakes, which was like part of the reason why yeah. I got started thinking about this in the first place. But, um, what I find is that when you start talking about food choice, people just get very emotional. It's strange how emotionally connected people are to like bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And people take, people take things like veganism usually like, so they sort of take offense to it when you bring it up. Um, I guess because it's like an ethical thing, they feel like, you know, like I never, I never mean to have it feel like a personal attack on a person, but a lot of people take it that way. And like, no, there, are are pe- really... there, there are people who are going to be listening right now who are, who are sitting there like uh, stewing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you holier than thou person. I'm just, I'm just like stating my belief a little bit or something and talking like kindly about it, but it, comes off as like hostile yeah so uh let's get back to like just try to follow the timeline a little bit like you were were you an engaged student as an undergraduate or were you sort of dicking around for those four years and and sort of uh finding your way into poetry is that a a proper read on it or was it more robust uh i was i was a pretty good student there were classes that i was really interested in i found that when I'm allowed to study what I'm interested in, like when I'm allowed to have a lot of freedom and independence in what I'm studying, I go above and beyond. You know, like there there are certain papers where I was allowed to write about some specific idea relating to poetry that I was really interested in at the time, and I would go beyond the length requirement, you know, way more sources than than was required, and like do phenomenally or whatever but like other times i would sort of you know have to read this book that the teacher picked out and that i didn't connect with that much and i would struggle to even get it done you know uh couldn't fake it yeah i think that's i think that's kind of why my mfa well that's one of the reasons why the mfa didn't really work out for me was that uh there wasn't as much independence and and like freedom in that program as I would have wanted. I think I don't know. There's a lot of reasons though. So you dropped out? Like, like how far along were you when you when you bailed on it? I was more than halfway done, I think, or around halfway. I had finished one year. It was a two year program, but it was going to take me at least like maybe into the summer of, of the summer after that. Uh, but I just dropped out in the fall of the second year. So then I just stopped going to classes. Like I, <laughs> when I make a decision, I usually like, just, I have to act on it immediately. Like I, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, it was that way when I decided to go vegetarian and decided to go vegan too. It's like, I make the decision and then it's just fully on from there. Like, I mean, um, uh, and so the same with this, it's like, I sort of started getting the idea in my head that I might drop out. And then I was, there was a couple class periods where I just was having a bad day. And so I just skipped because I was getting a little bit more apathetic. And then 
and then I just let it slip, and then I just didn't. <laughs> I just didn't even finish out the semester or anything. I just uh, failed out of my classes that I was in, I think, and just... So there's, I didn't, I didn't leave any hope of like returning to my MFA program. I just dropped, I just stopped. Scorched earth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about influences? Like what, you know, you said E.E. E. Cummings, but like you must've been reading other poets mm -hmm. and other writers who really, like, I know like on your website, you, you say that, uh, what is it? Buddha, Walt Whitman and little B are your, uh, or Lil B. Yeah. Those are your major influences. Like, is there any, I mean, there's something tongue in cheek at least, or no, those are all for real. Uh, those are all for real, but I feel I should, I, maybe I should expand that part of like my bio or something. I feel like, I feel like those three people fit a certain template of person and that's the same template of person that I would aspire to be like, um, which is like, ex uh, expound on that a little bit. Like, what do you mean? Like, what, yeah. is, what is this template? Well, for one, I feel like the culture that each of those three have produced uh, shares a lot. Like it's a similar worldview. Like it's a worldview of appreciating just the greatness, the vastness, the beauty of the world of being alive. Um, and they each like, I mean, I don't know. Buddha's a little different maybe because he was actually going at it as religion. So I was like, of course he was talking really directly about it. But with Whitman, and Lil B. I mean, Lil B can also just be very goofy about various things, but when he talks about those things, um, in the same way as Walt Whitman, he's just very direct about it. Like, my one teacher in grad school, I was talking to him about Walt Whitman, and and he he put it uh, this way, that, that Walt Whitman didn't have an ironic censor. And I feel like that's, that's maybe part of it. Like, a lot of people... Uh, wouldn't think to say, or they'd feel too self-conscious or or cliched to just be saying how beautiful the world is and everything, uh, and just like talking about appreciating each other uh, while we're here on Earth and stuff. But I really like how like Will Be and uh, Walt Whitman stuff, uh, the way I've perceived it, just like brings you back to that basic appreciation of being alive and stuff, and it's sort of ecstatic in this way. So I feel like. There's that that they share, those three, but then also then the way that they've lived out their lives, um, it's not just about creating those ideas or that or that worldview or the culture around it, but also like working hard to spread that stuff. Um, like Walt Whitman, I don't, he wasn't super successful during his life of spreading his stuff, I, I don't think, but he wrote a review of his own book anonymously, you know? No, <laughs> and he, you know, like, would hand out, I a, guess he would hand out pamphlets of his poetry and stuff. Well, no, there's a funny story. Like, I used to tell this to my students when I was teaching creative writing, is that, uh, you know, Walt Whitman got launched, uh, or part of what really launched him was the fact that Ralph Waldo Emerson was a big fan. And Emerson... Oh, yeah, yeah. Emerson wrote him, uh, I believe it was when Leaves of Grass was published. It was self-published uh, initially. And uh, Leaves of Grass got, you know, found its way into Ralph Waldo Emerson's hands, and he read it and loved it. And he wrote uh, a gushing letter to Whitman, I yeah. think, who was living in New York at the time. And Whitman, on the second printing of the book... Uh, excerpted the letter without asking permission and slapped like a like a blurb on the back of the yeah, book yeah. from Emerson, you know. So like, 
um, I don't know. There's something like, you know, and, and I think Allen Ginsberg had um, a background in publicity. Like, didn't he work as a publicist or work in marketing or something? And it just strikes me as interesting. It's like the, the two of the predominant, if not the two predominant American poets had um, good instincts in that way. And I think, um, you know, this gets at the heart of what fascinates me so much about you um, because I've had conversations with writer friends of mine going back several years, particularly in the context of the internet, uh, where I said, you know, I think the internet is really good for poetry. I think that like, it's, a, it's the best fit when it comes to literary forms because, yeah. uh, poems can be presented and, uh, read online more easily than long form literature, obviously. Um, yeah. but I also, I also felt that like the multimedia possibilities of the internet, uh, were really interesting for poets in particular, um, because, it would allow them to perform, you know, you, it's nice to, to see, to see the videos where you're reading your work, uh, that works. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. It just, it seems like a more of a natural fit. And I kept anticipating that there was going to be somebody out there who really got that and embraced it. And I feel like you're the first person that I've seen anyway. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people out there, um, or, or there will be soon, but I feel like there's something about your presentation and sort of the, the fusion of all the different aspects of what you do that gets at what I was thinking about. So I don't know. It just, it feels like a, nice. a step. I don't know. I mean, is that how you see it? Because uh, this is the thing is like, I want you to talk about your conception of what you do and why you do like, you know, the videos and uh, how, why you misspell the words and, you know, the creation of the culture that happens yeah, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a result of that through mimicry and, you know, all that stuff. Um, at first glance can seem accidental or even like an accident, <laughs> um, you know, like some sort of big, like grave mistake. And then you start to realize, um, that's not the case at all. And then you start to read more deeply and, uh, it gets very fascinating, uh, for me anyway. So like talk about, uh, you know, you're dropping out of graduate school at Columbia college in Chicago. And then when did you make the decision? I'm going to, I'm going to start doing this online. Um, like, you know, with gusto. And then I'm also going to go out and start traveling and, uh, living nomadically. Uh, well, yeah, a lot of the online stuff I started while I was still in the MFA program. I was, um, in late 2010 when I, the fall that I started the MFA program was also the first fall that I published my, uh, self-published a chat book. Um, and I did some online stuff with that. Like it was on a website along with the print copies, but, but it was still straightforward text poetry kind of. I didn't, I didn't do videos at that point or anything. Um, and then, but then in 2011, uh, there was this moment in one of my MFA classes. I remember I brought in this really sort of jokey poem that was, uh, if, I don't know. I was, I was doing a lot of like flarf inspired stuff when I was in my MFA program. That was my main influence at that time specifically. And, um, I think some of my teachers didn't really like that or get that. And, 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 um, and explain, explain what flarf is just so that listeners can get some content. Yeah. Uh, flarf is sort of this thing in, in poetry, uh, since the 2000s, uh, that mainly was, uh, I mean, it has a few different meanings, I guess, like intentionally bad poetry was the broadest meaning. But I think most of the time when people say flarf poetry, they're talking about this method of using found text from the Internet, usually from Google search results. So you'll type in some combination of words on Google and then scroll through the results and find these sort of 
funny excerpts or like sometimes they'll be sort of oddly profound or something, but it's collaging together these search results and stuff. Um, usually with this sort of ironic humor and, um, yeah. So, uh, my one teacher, I, there was this poem that was basically just making a joke, I guess. And this, <laughs> this teacher was like, save this stuff for your blog. Just like, it seemed like this, like, really condescending comment that just like it made me really want to own the blog thing you know it made me really want to be an internet poet because i felt like these people weren't respecting it like weren't acknowledging the validity of it and i for me that sort of like clarified what i did want to do and so then moving into 2011 i just kept noticing these these things on the internet that i felt were doing so much of what I like about poetry, but they were, they weren't even necessarily claiming the poetry name. Uh, there was this blog hipster runoff that I was right. following at the time pretty closely. And the sort of ironic humor on there, especially on the mainstreamer, the specific part of the website was really similar to far poetry to me. Um, but they had way more readers. You know, you put a, a far poetry on these small presses and, it's probably a couple hundred readers, could be a couple thousand. Uh, but this blog had like thousands of people that were reading it every day. Uh, and then there was horse ebooks that I found in February of 2011, I think. And I really was amused with that. Just these like these short clippings of these like spam bot type uh, sentences, you know, that were really amusing or really striking interesting language but it was presented in this sort of online distribution and in this specific context that like it was it just seemed really accessible and like fun um and i liked that these things weren't even necessarily claiming to be poetry uh but they were doing the same things as it and reaching a lot of people i think i've always been interested in reaching a lot of people that's like what i was saying about about Whitman and Buddha and Lil B being my heroes because they actually work to like build up and spread their stuff, like Buddha traveling and teaching people. Um, also other than, uh, the Walt Whitman thing. So, uh, but then I started doing image macros a bunch. That was one thing. I mean, I started doing a lot more on Twitter that was inspired by horse ebooks and some other like funny Twitter people I had found. Um, but I started doing image macros, which image macros, like the technical name for stuff like the wall caps where there's an image and then text, uh, over it. And, uh, usually for humorous effect, you know, like it's a picture of a cat and then it says something with a goofy misspelling or something. Uh, and so I started doing these image macros, uh, using Flarf as a way to write the, the, the captions for them. So I would be, and I made this video where it's, it's not that consequential what the name is for it, but I used the term micro flarf because I found, I, I liked the movement from, instead of collaging together all these sound internet lines, it was uh, just taking one at a time and like 
sending it out as a tweet or pairing it with an image or something. Are you still there? Yeah. I just wanted yeah, to check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get too far and then notice I, they're not there or something. Um, <laughs> no, but so, so, so was, when, you were, when you were creating these macros, just so I get a clear image or, or a clear idea of the process, um, you know, how did you land on the line? You're Googling some random term and then just looking at the results and grabbing a line that catches your eye and creating a macro with it. Uh, kind of, but I mean, I had certain techniques, I guess, like for what I would Google, like I, I would try to, you know, put stuff that, that would bring up stuff that was funny to me. So a lot of times I would pair something that seemed like an interesting or funny subject matter to me along with a specific type of language, like a specific phrasing or something like, um, early on I was, I was really interested in making these Justin Bieber macros, like these macros about Justin Bieber and stuff. So, and I would have these like characters from like the 1800s or something like talking about Justin Bieber enthusiastically. And I would have, uh, I would search like Bieber fricking sweet or something like to sort of, tr- because I liked to capture when I was reading K. Silent Muhammad, my favorite far poet, I kept noticing where he would have this sort of language that seemed like it was from like the comment section. Like that was a specifically the type of internet language that would interest me, like the comment section, you know, like these people like shit talking each other, like as if they have this authority or just like, as if they're really enthusiastic comments. I don't know. Just like everybody like seems to like enjoy getting up on this soapbox and like, uh, I don't know. I find it, like I find it like amusing, but also lovable, uh, and just interesting, I guess. So anyway, I would often pair like some like little snippet of language like that. And like, uh, this time in the fall that I was doing it last fall when I, after I had been doing it for a while longer, I remember, I remember searching the phrase, like, I want to dating you or like, or like I want to dating or something like this, you know, this pairing of this, like, ungrammatical uh, verb usage and then sort of, you know, flipping through the results, seeing which one like made me most amused as where, as to where it took it after that. Well, that's like, you know, that's, uh, like, that, that's interesting to me. Cause that's like, you know, that's a great active usage of the internet. Do you know what I'm saying? You're using, yeah. you're using it to create art as opposed to just kind of like sit there slack jawed and receive, you know? Yeah, I guess that's, that's an interesting thing to me because a lot of people, you know, criticize, you know, spending four hours on Facebook or whatever. But to me, that's like, I feel like I'm doing my best work when I'm like on Facebook for four hours. I feel like I'm making a difference. I feel like I'm the happiest that I can be after I've been like boosting people on social media for like 10 hours or something, you know? So it's like, but I, yeah, it's just a difference in like, between the active use of it and passive use of it, I guess. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing. It's not inherently, I don't think it's inherently bad or inherently good. It's just a matter of what we do. Yeah. With it. I think it's sort of engineered, uh, to, it's sort of engineered, like it tilts more towards passive use. Do you know what I'm saying? You kind of have to like roll your sleeves up a little bit and be disciplined about using it the right way. It's easy to fall into like passive use, uh, sort of like television. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It seems like it encourages more activity than television. Like, I mean, yeah. you do have to click various things. You have more choice than that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so let's talk about some of the um, 
the the memes or some of the stuff that you do like i want to um talk about the misspellings you know is that something that you grabbed from flarf or is that something like that you one day started doing uh and kind of making yourself laugh with it and then it stuck or like what's the origin of that well i had always uh experimented with stuff like that uh i found the poet peter orlovsky who was a beat poet uh, a little bit less known. Uh, he was like Allen Ginsberg's lover for a while, maybe I think a long time actually. And I really like his poetry, and he uses a lot of misspellings. Um, so I found his poetry in like 2007, and I started doing some misspellings around then, but I didn't really stick with it too hard. Um, but I had always been like, from the E. e. Cummings influence, I was always playing with punctuation and capitalization and spacing and stuff. So I was always open to stuff like that. And I think specifically then, like, some Twitter accounts that were using the misspellings a lot. And, like, when I was looking at macros for inspiration, like all the wall caps and stuff, those always use the misspellings. So I think it started, this this re- this most recent wave of it was um, was started as, yeah, from the Internet stuff, flarf, the flarfy type of stuff, not from floor poetry itself I think but um uh but what's interesting is I feel like I've I've had a lot of like post ironic uses of misspelling I feel like post irony I'm not even sure if that's the best word and I know like to some people that word wouldn't be helpful at all um but there that's the best word that I know of that like this dynamic of sort of uh it's a, it's a really central part of my work, I think, um, where, like, for example, with the misspellings, so the misspelling of my site name is a great example. Live my life, with the L-I-E-F misspelling of life, um, live my life seems like this motivational, positive, inspirational thing. I've referred to it as a mantra. Live my life. You know, <laughs> live my life. Uh but the misspelling sort of makes it funny, you know, sort of undercuts it. Uh, and yet, I still think it feels motivational anyway. Like, it's still, at least the site, is is positive and motivational. So it's like, it's a joke, but it's not only a joke. Like, uh, Well, and it's just like, I mean, it's like, it, it does something at the surface level with the text that causes... Because this is what it did to me is that it makes me stop for a second and actually think about what you're saying. <laughs> you, know, like, you go, wait a minute. He, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, especially the internet where there's so much information coming at people when you have these intentional misspellings and these macro presentations and um, the combination of like, you know, uh, you know, ironic humor coupled with really earnest, like sincere messages of positivity um, yeah, you know, that stuff, uh, catches your eye and then it forces, you know, it causes you to look deeper. Uh, and, and once you realize that there is something deeper, uh, happening, then it has its hooks in you. Do you know what I'm saying? I think there's something sort of, uh, genius about that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. A lot of times I feel like the misspellings also make the voice seem, um, cuter. That's, that's one thing. Like, um, the, the thing was they'll put the, Last fall, fall 2011, I really started amping up my use of misspellings. Like, I had done it some as part of my flarfing before that, but really last fall I started amping it up a lot, and I started doing it in the context of these love poems that turned into, like, Somewhere in the Bottom of the Rain, 
um, and some others. But um, like I always, in somewhere in the bottom of the rain, for example, I think I always spell kiss, K-I-S. And in most of my stuff, I just, I like the spelling more. I don't know. Um, and a lot of misspellings, though, I feel like make, like it it alters the voice in a way. And the people in the MFA program really struggled with that intellectually. Like they would say, like, so the speaker is a kid probably because of the misspellings, but then they're saying all this really romantic stuff. I don't get it. Like, or, um, or they would be saying like, how, why would you misspell kiss, but then spell giraffe correctly? You know? Right. So, but that's part um, of the, that's part of the me, art of it. Never... Part, of the, part of the art of it is deciding which words to misspell. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, it's, it's like scare quotes. It's like, which words do you scare quote? I mean, if you just, if you're really completely arbitrary about it, it doesn't work. Like you have to do it well, I think, you know? Yeah, I think maybe they were accusing me of being somewhat arbitrary about it, but I think they were looking for too much of like a rigid logic or like an intellectual reasoning behind when like for me it was a very intuitive thing and like it was it was affecting the voice. Like I felt that it was making the voice cuter and funnier and I don't know, just achieving something something in there. But it wasn't like it was it's hard for me to explain to them, I guess. So it ended up like I would bring in these poems every week and we would just talk about the misspellings no matter what else was in the poem, you know? <laughs> right. So, right. So let's talk about other, um, you know, other buzzwords <laughs> in the, uh, Steve Roggenberg universe. Like I just noticed like Fricker, uh, is obviously a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like you know, are, are a lot of these just words that like they, they make me laugh uh, a lot of the time? Yeah, are they just words that make you laugh, and then they just become sticky and they become part of like the language. But there is a distinct language to the subculture that exists um, in alt lit in general, which I think we should probably talk about in a broader sense, but also specifically um, around your work. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, all these things sort of happen organically as you're experimenting with this stuff and putting together poems and macros, and then. You know, the ones that are stickiest have a tendency to hang around. Is, I mean, is that the right reading on it? Uh, possibly. I, yeah, I don't know. I like Fricker and like there's other like Hacker, Hackwad, <laughs> Hacking, um, <laughs> Fricking, uh, Frick. <laughs> all these, all these like these soft swear words. I really like for some reason. I don't, I don't know why exactly. Um, I feel like I've, come to uh i feel like i've had a moment where i discovered like to myself why i like them or some reasoning but now i can't remember it i don't know um i've just always been amused by that sometimes i feel that it is somewhat arbitrary um my use of the word truly i think has really caught on and like i'm still hooked on it like i say it all the time and like the people that i stay with <laughs> always get in the habit of saying truly a lot um <laughs> But it, it's just, it's this adverb that like, and it's funny, I was talking to my, one of my friends on the phone and I noticed that she was starting to say truly before she even knew what she was going to say after it, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's like, I don't know what, it, what I'm going to say that this is, but I know that it's truly that, you know? Right. So I don't know. Um, I feel sometimes it's a little bit arbitrary, but sometimes, sometimes there's a little bit more, uh, significance maybe but i feel like in either case 
it's sort of just building a culture that you can get into and it's connected to the other memes, you know, the other language, the other stuff that's going on. So it just creates this whole world that you can sort of get into and be part of and like belong in kind of. So I feel like it's kind of fun and valuable to have those language things, even if a specific one doesn't have that much deeper value. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it, and it's like, I've read some of your stuff online. Like, well, I think it was an essay that, you know, that kind of tried to make an attempt to, uh, sum up or at least partially sum up your approach. And it was talking about how, um, the creation of art within this community and the creation of culture that results is sort of an alternative to some of the more brain dead cultural alter alternatives that we have, uh, like television, yeah. for instance, you know, it's like a, it's a more productive way. And, and frankly, often a lot more fun way to spend your time when you're like doing something online that's participatory and funny and involves other people, um, in an, yeah. in an active way, you know, truly. Um, so, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about alt lit. Okay. Cause like I need, okay. I, I actually need some clarification on this. Like I, I get easy, I'm easily confused trying to keep track of everything that happens on the internet, but I'm also easily fascinated and, uh, um, yeah, yeah. alt lit feels to me. And I, and like, you know, I don't know if I'm reading this and, uh, accurately by saying that you're a part of alt lit. Um, I don't know if you, yeah. I don't know if you feel that way or if you feel like you're sort of your own thing. I mean, it, it's so hard when you start talking about labels and names and movements and stuff like that. But, yeah. um, one thing I've noticed as sort of like a, um, through line or a similarity uh, among altlet, um, authors or people who are participating in that way online is that there's kind of a, like a purity and a, um, humor and a vitality to it and a lack of pretense that I find, uh, really, uh, relieving and interesting and just, nice. yeah, I, I enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? And I'm 37 years old. I just turned 37. So I feel like I'm on, yeah. I'm on the high end <laughs> of the, uh, of, of, yeah. the, of the age range. I don't think there are that many people my age. So I'm starting to wonder if something's wrong with me sometimes, but I don't the, know. The, the truth is that, yeah, the truth is that, uh, I, I guess I just, um, you know, I find it, uh, exhausting sometimes all the posturing and pretense that goes into like high literary culture or, I don't know. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, I, I love the energy of it. And, and something that you said earlier about comment board language, uh, which I tend to be really moved by emotionally. And just as like, from my particular perspective as a reader, I think like the central litmus that I hold literature up to, uh, up against when I'm trying to, um, decide, uh, it's, it's personal value to me is whether or not it moves me emotionally, whether that means it makes me laugh or it makes me sad or it makes me, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just looking for that sort of experience that feels authentic and uh, authentically emotionally interesting. And I guess I get that a lot of the time from this stuff. So can you talk about, uh, outlet and kind of explain maybe to listeners what it is or what you think it is, and then maybe, um, whether or not you feel like you fit into it or if you feel like you're apart from it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I like what you said about the, the lack of pretense compared to a maybe other lit culture or something. I, uh, I think I understand what you're saying and I, I agree and appreciate that too. Um, the, uh, the term alt-lit is just recently starting to catch on, it seems like, but I know the origin story. Um, it's a rare, rare story, not that known. Um, Corey Stevens, who's twitter.com slash outmouth, um, coined 
uh, alt lit. I think he was he was influenced by hipster runoffs use of the word alt, and he was using the word alt in other ways too. Like he referred to soy milk once as alt milk. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> he 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 came up with the term alt lit and created this Tumblr blog called Alt Lit Gossip, and he did it for a couple months, covering a lot of the people that were in like. Pop Serial, this lit mag, um, sure, that yeah. Stephen Tully Burke's run, and like some of the people around Moomoo House, but then also some other people that are covered in this broader community around HTML Giant. And um, so he ran that for a few months, and then he sort of went off the grid somewhat. I think he only had like computer, like internet on his phone or something, and he, he dropped the blog. But Frank Hinton, editor of Metazen, she's got a chat book, uh, I think she's got a novel coming out. Um, she uh, she took it up. She squatted on the URL and the name of Alt Lit Gossip and started doing it again with some and then bringing some other people in to help out. And um, that blog's gotten kind of popular now. But uh, I don't know. I feel like um, pretty much everyone would say that I'm part of Alt Lit. Um, there's been some debate over it and people talking about similar like related things like other terms for the same group of writers are like and I don't know it's kind of interesting um uh like uh I feel like the main person in Altlet or like uh one of the main figures has been Tao Lin um but some people feel that that the word that the term Altlet shouldn't even be used to describe him as much as like these people who came after him, like really influenced by him. Uh, what was so inf- what's so inf- what's so it, it influential? Confusing. What's so influential about Tao? I mean, let's t- talk about him because I know that he has like a lot of uh, currency in the world of alt lit. A lot of people are big fans of his work, and you know he does. And I, you know, I, I I'm a fan of his and have known him for you know at least online for um, several years and have followed what he's been up to and. There are a lot of the, you know similar things in terms of how he has leveraged the internet to create culture and create an audience for his work. I mean, that's got to be something that influenced you, correct? Yeah, yeah. Tao Lin, like, I always had this vague idea of using social networking to spread my poetry. Like, ever since I was using it for my bands and then I started getting the poetry, I'm like, I could do the same thing on MySpace, you know, for my own poetry. Turns out it was these other sites, but basically, I mean, but uh, but Tao was one of the, my, my main models when I first started actually doing it. Like, he was just, like, present when I first found his stuff, I was like, oh, no, somebody already did all the stuff that I <laughs> wanted to do. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I just, so then I started a Blogspot blog um, where I would write, like, some essays, uh, some reviews and stuff, and that's possibly where you uh, may have read an older essay of mine or something. Um, but that was at – it's still – archived at steverobenbuck.com if you scroll down to where it says blogged about poetry in the past you can find the old blog archives but then I also started Twitter and then I started using Facebook a little bit for the poetry stuff although I really started doing that a lot in 2011 with Facebook making it my main thing but um uh, uh <laughs> yeah he was he was sort of a model for for me adapting, uh, use, using the internet to promote my stuff. Um, 
I don't know. Tao has like Tao's had a huge influence. I feel like, um, I don't know. Like, you know, people always said like Tao and imitators, quote unquote. You know, and referring to I think some of the writers that have been published through Moo Moo House and some others. I'm sure at one point I qualified as a Tao Lin imitator to other people um, because I was pretty highly influenced by him. Um, and just recently people have started saying Steve Rogenbuck imitators um, and referring to people that are making like image macros a lot and putting out... Uh, I think image macros is the main thing that people immediately notice and stuff like the misspellings and some other stuff like, I mean, the fluffiness, but then also like the way it combines with some of like the other phrasing that I've used in some of like the darker or like the stranger like love poems and stuff. Um, but I, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of scattered in answering this, but like Altlet, Altlet is. Altlet hasn't been a focused movement or anything, you know, like nobody put out a manifesto for it or anything. It's just sort of like this word that's been used to describe what is happening, you know, and there's this community or these overlapping communities. Like there's, there's a community around my work now. There's been communities around Tao's work and there's sort of, you know, there's a big following on several different blogs in the community and, um, you know, lots of people find each other on certain, uh, through certain hubs in the community, but they're sort of, they're sort of all tied together. There's maybe different factions within it or something, but it's like, it's sort of just this existence of all these communities and like the mass of work that is, that is cranked out by this community. Um, so there's a lot of diversity I feel in Alt-Lit and you can't really say much definitive about it. I feel like, um... I've been writing some essays now that refer to Altlet, like I had an essay about Altlet community building, and then I had an essay just this past week called Straight Edge Altlet Rise Up, but I'm not talking, I'm not like saying things on behalf of Altlet as a whole. I feel like nobody could really have that position to talk about on behalf of it as a whole. I feel like for example, though the um, the straight edge alt lit post. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask, I wanted wrong. to ask you about that because that that is at odds with I think like a lot of um, the community or a lot of the work that has been produced yeah. for the community and the general attitude embraced not just by alt lit people but by like you know literary people online in general. It's not often that somebody st- you know st- uh, stands up and says uh, I'm I'm not using alcohol and drugs at all. I'm not taking Adderall or Xanax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like there's so much of that. Yeah, I think. Truly. Um, and I mean, I think it's, I think it can, I think drug use can be valuable for other people, but I feel like, um, it was just so prominent and I feel like not just the fact that other people use, um, you know, drugs and all, but, um, just the way that it would be referenced in the work so frequently and with this in this way that I felt like that was romanticizing it, you know, like that was why it was cool or something like the poem was cool because the person said they were taking these drugs in it or something. I just felt like I felt that, you know, certain times more than others, other work, it, it didn't get to me that way, but I just felt like there was this overwhelming support for that in the community that I felt like, um, uh, I, I feel like it mirrors the original use of straight edge really well. Like, 
um, suppose the original straight edge was in the hardcore community that was like a response to the hedonism of like the, the punk culture that existed before it. And it's like, it makes sense to me, like you're part of this community and you just see like so much of the community, like holding up this one ideal and like chanting for it or whatever, you know, it just makes you sort of want to stand up and say like, Hey, I'm also part of this community and that's not what I believe. So if you not, not in a way like I'm trying to break away or, or bash on the other part of the community, but more so that I'm just saying like, if you're also in this community and feel the same as me, you know, you still have a place here, especially since I feel like I've become one of the leaders of the community that's, I had a particularly good opportunity to, to say that. Yeah, well, uh, it's a complicated issue. Like, I have such a complicated uh, view of drugs because, like you say, like, they can lead to, like, extraordinarily positive things and people can have yeah. huge personal and artistic breakthroughs. And, like, that's true, you know. They, and, and people can just have yeah. like, a hell of a lot of fun on drugs. But um, there's a very significant dark side and... Uh, you know, that needs to be talked about as well. And like, it's very dangerous, you know what I'm saying? Especially when you get into like heavy pharmaceuticals and, um, you know, addiction and all that kind of stuff. Like it can be extremely, uh, destructive in all sorts of different ways. So it's a tricky issue and there's no one, I don't think it's a black and white issue either, but I think it's important that, um, you know, there be some diversity to the perspective, right? Yeah. And I think like I was already living this way, um, and so it was kind of like, I just wanted to make it a, a, like publicly noted, you know, so that, um, I, so like the post listed some reasons why I don't use drugs or alcohol, but it wasn't like it, the main point of the essay wasn't to be an argument against using them. It was just sort of like, you know, like I said, to say, Hey, I'm here and I, I live this way. And so I feel like people should be able to feel like part of the community without feeling pressured to be part of that part, that aspect of the community to be medicated. Yeah. And, and, uh, so you don't drink or uh, do any drugs at all. No, okay. it's interesting. Cause if, yeah, you, if, you, just, if you, if you watch your videos, people, I think people's initial, like for like an outsider, yeah. an outsider looking in, like, I think people might be like, Holy cow, this guy's fucked up. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's actually, yeah. Truly. Actually not. The I case. get that question pretty frequently. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, I just I get jacked up like the focus on just doing my work and stuff like and I don't know. I've never I don't know. Okay, so when you're making that when you're making those videos and, and you know, for those of people listening um, who haven't seen uh, one of Steve's videos, you really should watch them. Like, I love your videos and I think they're um, interesting and hilarious and uh, moving, uh, strangely moving at times. And uh, what I want to know is how you make them. I'm interested in, uh, you know, obviously sometimes people are filming you. I'm assuming you're using a camera or a, a phone camera. Is that what you're usually using to film or is it something more, um, robust? Uh, usually I'm by myself. Uh, usually I'm like holding it out, you know, with the one hand, like MySpace style, you know, and, uh, I use uh, this like point and shoot digital camera that my dad got me for Christmas one year that has like some HD video capability or sometimes um, when it's a little bit lower quality, that's often was when I was using just like the camera on my iPhone. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing for those. Uh, the process, usually I'll have some basic idea of what I want to do. Like I'll have some, some line that I want to use for a title or some 
vague topic, but sometimes I don't even really know. Um, and I just go and I like improvise all this footage of me, like shouting things and saying things, trying to be funny. And, um, you know, some of them I'm in, like, I'm in this outdoor setting and I end up getting on this more impassioned, um, role where I'm actually saying things that end up, you know, inspiring people also. But a lot of times I'm just inside somewhere alone where I can just yell and not feel self-conscious and I'm just trying to be funny. And I have like an hour or more of footage. Sometimes I've had over two hours of footage and I cut it down to like a minute or two or three, you know, of like, and I, and I cut the clips really close together, but, um, and you're, so and you're just doing this on and you're doing this on iMovie. Is it iMovie that you're using? I've been using iMovie. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I have intentions to get a copy of Final Cut Pro and start using that because I think it'll sort of you know allow me to do other stuff, especially with like the typography or other miscellaneous things. But yeah, I've just been using iMovie. Pretty straightforward, just cutting these clips together and using you know modifying the 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 video and audio settings a bit, but, um, well, see, but I can't, I cannot imagine that in the world that we live in and, and as we go forward, that if any poets are going to distinguish themselves in the culture, that this won't be uh, a component, you know, it just seems like such a natural fit or I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and it seems like such an opportunity because, um, you know, otherwise what, you know, prior to this, what were you limited to? You were limited to public gatherings, wherever you could get people into a bookstore or some sort of basement or something. And, um, th- those are great. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's fine too, but, um, it, yeah. just, it just allows you to expand your reach so significantly and, and with, these, oh, with these tools to create, um, you know, I think, uh, videos of true cinematic quality. Like I love documentary film. And so like when you're talking about your process and you're talking about, shooting three hours to get three minutes, um, that's pretty much the ratio. I mean, you know, you're shooting thousands of feet of film in a documentary and, um, especially when you're improving, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And, uh, I think it's, yeah. I think it yields interesting results and, um, I don't know. I'm a fan of that. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know exactly where I was going there. Um, <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. There's lots of different things to say, but yeah, yeah. Okay, what? so let me let me ask you this though. Like, what uh, what do you see going forward? Like, I want to know two things uh, before I let you go. Yeah. Like, you know, like what do you what like do you have a vision? Um, you know, you you talked earlier in like this kind of like uh, earnest way about wanting to be great. Like, do you know what great looks like? Uh, can you quantify it? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Do you have like a, a number of of readers or followers or anything like that or is it just going to be more of an intuitive sense of it um do you have a sense of what you're going to do like with your life is it going to continue to be a situation where you're trying to build community around your work and you're going to be like a traveling poet i mean is this like a long-term thing or is this um kind of a means to an end or some sort of temporary um you know period of your life before you wind up settling in san francisco on a more permanent basis yeah uh Okay, so well, I feel like I feel like to me doing something great. Um, the most important component of that is just like actually having an impact in individuals' lives, which I already am doing, and I love the way that I build my uh, my following or my whatever is so awesome because I get so much direct feedback from people. Like even if even if a, a standard 
publishing setup would get me to more readers, it wouldn't get me as many like enthusiastic comments back from those readers, you know? And that's, that's a really big boost. You know, that's like, I have this folder on my computer where I've been saving these screenshots of when people just say like really nice things. Like they'll tweet something like I was sad. Then I watched the Steve Rogan book video. Now I'm happy and stuff like that. Like you've changed my life. Thank you so much for your positive perspective and stuff. And like just countless Literally, there's almost 700 of these screenshots now that I just got. <laughs> I just keep like to remind myself what I'm doing. Like, if I ever doubt myself or like take some criticism too seriously, you know. And like, so I feel like I'm already doing what I want to do with my life, and like I've been achieving that on an individual level. And I think just like more of the same kind of. Um, of course, it's going to have to like structure differently as it grows. And I think like one thing I was, I was considering, I couldn't, I couldn't decide if setting, setting a goal of a number would be helpful, like for a certain time period. I've sort of had this idea in my mind of like, of 10,000 followers on various platforms, because I think when I was learning about blogging and like the different ways that people make a sustained living off blogging, a lot of times it was a lot of those blogs would, would have about around that much following. Um, and so I think maybe I had, or no, like, or these other, well, I guess kind of that, uh, I don't know. There were certain blogs that I held up near the beginning, um, like hipster runoff and, um, pictures for sad children, this webcomic. Also, I knew John Campbell who does that webcomic. I met him in person in Chicago and he was really inspiring to me because he, you know, just every day his, what he does is just his webcomics and the stuff related to that. And, um, doing like not having to do other stuff for a job was really important to me. Now I've sort of achieved it, although I've cheated because a lot of why I can achieve it is because I've lowered my expenses so much just staying with people for free and like eating really cheap food and not buying anything really. Um, but I've achieved this. I'm not like dead set on that as much, although I still do want to be able to just keep doing this when I do settle somewhere. I feel like I'll settle somewhere in probably San Francisco. Um, but I'll probably always travel a lot. I think, I think there's always going to be, uh, new ways to expand what I'm doing. And I feel like, I feel like I haven't been thinking about the future as much, like honestly, kind of, um, I used to have this somewhat laid out idea of the future because I was with this girl for six years and we sort of had this plan of having a family. And so I was, that was part, that was the main reason maybe why I did my MFA program was I felt like I had to have a, like a good size income. So I figured I would have to be teaching probably, but I also had this impulse that I just wanted to keep doing my art all the time. So I did the MFA as a sort of compromise, um, temporarily. And then I dropped out of that like a month after I broke out of that relationship. So I don't know exactly where things will go. Somebody asked me in an interview where I see myself in 10 years and I don't know, but I added a smiley face after saying, I don't know. Uh, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm fine with that now. Uh, I feel like it's, it, 
it's going to grow in like unexpected ways maybe, but I'll just keep rolling with it. Uh, okay. Did I, did I miss anything else? <laughs> I think you got it. I think you got it. And, um, you know, one last question before I let you go. I actually asked um, Facebook people online what I should ask you. And I had uh, oh, yeah. several uh, girls asked, uh, asked me to ask you if you have a girlfriend. Not <laughs> <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, well, no. Um, the traveling has been my... Uh, has broke up some things that like probably could have turned into a situation where I would have, you know, really sort of fell for someone or something, but I kind of just had to move on to the next city and my, so I guess I don't have, I don't have a quote unquote girlfriend at this point. No. Do you have, but you have like women, like, uh, like fan, you know, fans of yours that are pining to meet you when you, when you show up in these towns, do you feel like, Oh, truly man. I feel, (laughs) you know what? Like, I mean, the, the, I mean, it's so it worked out really well for me when I became single. It was also timed up when I started doing my video blogs a lot, and it's like I've had no shortage of people being interested in me in that way. Well, no, I mean, you know? if, you, if you're going to be the travel, so, it's better to be single if you're going to be a traveling poet. Let's just be honest. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's. I feel like if anybody's out there is having trouble meeting girls or, or guys to, uh, you know, start up a personal brand, you know, build, <laughs> build, build a website. Uh, you know, it's like a magnet, you know, it's like a magnet mainly for like, what's interesting about it. Well, no, I mean, it makes sense. It's like a magnet for like cute indie girls and gay men. I found. <laughs> you have a big gay, a big gay male following. <laughs> I have a pretty big gay male following. Yeah. Uh, so. What well, happens? You know, you, know, you video. I mean, you got the full thing going on. You got the poetry. You got the you know the literary side of it. You got the videos. It's funny. You know, there's a lot of different things going on. So, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. And I congratulate you on all that you have accomplished because. Um, you know, you're operating outside of the traditional confines of the publishing world in a way that is, uh, you know, ex- extremely effective. And I, uh, I can't wait to see what happens next and like where you take this thing because, um, I, uh, I'm a fan of it. It's fun for me to watch. So I wish you the best of luck with it. I thank you for spending time, uh, talking with me and, uh, you know, if you're ever out in uh, Los Angeles, I hope we can meet up. Truly. I'll be in Los Angeles in maybe December, so we should hang out or something. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I'm also, not not to be self-indulgent, but I'm also interested where my own path takes me. I don't know. I I, I like talking about myself way too much. Um, But thank you for indulging me in that, Uh, and thank you for all the interest. All right, man. Well, listen, best of luck on the road. Thank you, 666. Okay, folks, there you go. That's the show. That is Steve Rogenbach. Thank you for listening. You can find Steve online. He's all over the World Wide Web. Check him out at steverogenbach.com. Check him out at livemylife.com. That's L-I-E-F. Get his book there while you're at it. It's called Crunk Juice. You can follow him on the Twitter. His handle is at Steve Rogenbach, and he's also maintaining a very robust Facebook presence. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, once again, at OtherPeoplePod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. And if you would like to email me, 
please do so at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, yeah, what can I tell you? It's late. I'm recording this late at night. I'm racing to get things done. It is after midnight. I am feeling soft in the head. I have been up since the crack of dawn. I am beginning to fade. I can feel it happening. It's happening. Please remember that Tolstoy was abusive to his servants and that Henry James once hid behind a tree to avoid having to spend time with Ford Maddox Ford. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it a ton. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for spreading the word. Thank you for pausing and taking one long, extremely deep and concentrated breath while silently contemplating 400 million years ago. 400 million years ago. Think of the ocean. Visualize the very first sea creature in the history of this planet ever to crawl out of the ocean and begin struggling to walk in the sand. Continue breathing. Do not stop. Continue visualizing a very slimy, lizard-like creature struggling to walk in the sand. And suddenly, it looks up at you and it says, 